Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the series finale of Now You Know, Theology in the Modern World, hosted by Father Cody, who is here. I am not Father Cody. I've produced this podcast, but yeah, we're closing out on an interview, talking about topics we didn't get to cover, topics of the sort. And um, so yeah, I'm Jake Sheridan. I'm the producer of the podcast. And we're also joined by our campus minister, Bridget Vanek, who just has a bevy of questions to ask. (laughs) Sure do. (laughs) Big fan of being tangential, so bear with us. Um, Okay, so let's start out. Father Cody... How are you doing? How are you doing? Feeling good? Doing well. Okay. Can't need to almost have a conclusion to one series. Like, yeah. You know? Good. So my first question is going to be a deep dive into like the past, I guess. Um, so how did you end up as a priest in Missoula, Montana? What led in? What led you to get into this? Well, I'll try and keep the story somewhat simple and short because there's probably other things we're more interested in getting to. Uh, after graduating high school, I decided to go to the University of Montana for college. But before I got here, I, someone, some priest had plugged my ear with the idea of becoming a priest, which I thought was hilarious and not going to happen. So I went off to college with the hope of getting a degree in biology and going off to be a researcher, which was my goal, or professor, that would have been awesome. Well, the question didn't go away, and I kept playing with it and praying with it, and then my faith started to actually grow in a way it hadn't before. So that through the course of my four years in college, this was a constant theme. Yeah. What do I believe? What do I want to believe? To the point where when I finally finished college, I asked God the question, do you want me to be a priest? To which I got the response, yes. And like, that's weird. You answer questions. Mm-hmm. Didn't expect that. So then I asked again just to be sure. You know, why not? And the answer was still yes. So I decided to go for it. Yeah. After which point I spent... The summer, working with Southern Oregon University as a field botanist. The winter and spring as a grocery sh- grocer at Rose Hours. And then entered seminary that fall. Spent six years in seminary and was ordained three years ago. So what, I mean, another kind of lead-up question. What, what is the process like for becoming a priest? He said six years of schooling. How is that laid out? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So let's say someone went and got a four-year degree at a university with a degree in philosophy or theology, and is accepted by the seminary. Once they've applied to the diocese that they want to be a part of, the region of churches, then the diocese will send them to a seminary, and then there they will spend either four or five years studying theology, depending on the seminary. They will get a master's degree in divinity, or master's in theology, or sacred baccalaureate in theology, one of the four, three options. Now, the reason why it's four or five years is some dioceses in the United States require what's called a pastoral year. So between second and third theology, they'll take a year off and go spend time in a parish, learning parish life, and hanging out for that year, being part of that parish. Mm -hmm. So for me, I didn't do that. So mine was four years of theology, whereas some people have five. Now let's say you're like me, and I enter seminary with a degree, but it wasn't biology or theology, sorry, it wasn't theology or philosophy. Okay. Well then, I still need to get the philosophy, so I understand the theology. So I took two years crash course in philosophy, then went on for the four years master's program. Again, there's another option. 
let's say someone has no college experience. They came right out of high school, or maybe they had several careers, but never went to college. Yeah. Then they'll get a four-year degree in philosophy, and then a four-year degree in theology. Four years bachelor's, four years master's. And so, um, is it just like a regular university system that they do these? That depends. At? Okay. Where I went to, it was a Benedictine monastery attached to a seminary. Mm-hmm. So we were... We lived there. It was basically all seminarians that went to classes together. We knew each other well. And the sem- the monastery ran the seminary, so they hired the professors. They t- took care of all of that. So for me, it was one and the same. Yeah. It was a university and a seminary. But places like Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., they have a seminary, which does all the seminary stuff, such as spiritual formation, pastoral assignments, and stuff like that. But then they go to... Catholic University for the classes. So they'll be amongst religious, so they'll be amongst people studying for various degrees and whatnot as they're preparing for priesthood. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't really know what the minutia of becoming a priest was like, so I feel like that's valuable information for some people. Well, there's far more to it than that. Is yes, this yeah. is a very simplified <laughs> version. A, nice. But still, it still is pretty interesting. Um, so getting to the more current part of this, what made you want to start this message series, and then what made you want it to be a podcast? Well, you. (laughs) So last fall, I was debating how to engage the college students that I work with and how to really um, reach them in topics of interest and open up topics of faith to our modern world issues. So I was playing with a series I did last fall called Tough Questions, which was fun. It was a a joy to take kind of... It's more secular... Okay. Where you kind of combine the two together, where this series is more about faith issues, such as issues in the Catholic Church, which is a little bit different. And so I found a lot of students were asking questions about faith, or that's the kind of general feel across social media. Yeah. Which is why I picked the name of the series and also the topics for these 11 weeks. The podcast came later when you, Jake, came up to me and said, Hey, why don't you make this new podcast? I'm like, Well, that's a cool idea. I don't know what I'm doing, but let's give it a shot. <laughs> So you took care of the whole podcast side of it, and I would record all of them so that not only was it a series I ran through Christ the King and also through University of Montana, but now something that anyone can listen to regardless of where they're at. Yeah. So what, um, what led you to decide on the topics of this season or this series? Were they just the most commonly asked ones? Were they ones that you wanted to give answers to but maybe weren't asked that many times? Yes. Yes. Yes, just so, in general. <laughs> I, I also I started out with a list of a lot of different questions, mm-hmm. which ended up paring down very quickly, which are ones I get asked a lot, mm-hmm. ones that were either controversial or misunderstood, because I wanted to bring clarity to a lot of the church's teachings and allow people to know this is what the church's, church's stance is. Because a lot of times we get locked or lost in the midst of lots of different opinions and things and don't know the core teaching to which then people bounce off of that into their own ideas yeah. or different interpretations. Mm-hmm. So I tried to stay very clear when I said this is a church's teaching and this is sometimes where it goes. So we have a good understanding of how this question is answered and where the church's stance truly is. Mm-hmm. Then some of them were just fun. Yeah. I was like, this is something I think people would be interested in. Or I pulled the staff and got some questions from them. And then lastly, I went online to see what people, are, what kind of questions people are asking throughout social media. Yeah. So what, if you can think of one off the top of your head, great. If you can't, that's also fine. What's one of the topics that you had written down or heard that you didn't get a chance to go over that maybe 
you would like to briefly speak about? One I played with was women's role in the church. Mm-hmm. And I, this might seem horrible, but I found it kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Because really, what's the difference between a man's role and a woman's role for the most part? And it's hard to talk about that because then we have to talk about gender, but not really in a useful way. Mm-hmm. And then we also have to talk about things that it's are just basically functional roles. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't really think there's a lot to it, but although it is an important question for a lot of people as they play with the question of why is there an all-male priesthood or do women have a place in the church, I sympathize with people asking that question and understand where they're coming from. I just didn't know how interesting of a topic it would be once we really got down to how it would be answered. Mm-hmm. So is that why you positioned it behind a different question of like, yes. why can't, okay. That's why we have the topic, why can't women become priests? Or why does the Catholic Church not have women priests? Okay. So, so it's not about gender roles. Yeah. Either it's about who has things they can do with the church. It's more which about is that one part thing of it. specifically. Yep. Okay. So that, so that is one that you kind of covered then, would you say? Like yeah, to an tangibly. extent. Cause yeah, you, you get into gender and non-binary and all that in that episode. Or no, that's in the homosexuality episode. Anyway, those back-to-back have a lot of similarities in talking about those sort of theories. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there one that was, like, the hardest to cover, whether because it was just hard to talk about or hard to find research for or hard to speak from from your specific perspective? The hardest one for me was, what is the church's teaching on homosexuality? Mm -hmm. For a couple of reasons. It's a very nuanced topic, and it comes with a lot of emotional issues that people have for good reason. This affects a lot of people. The issue of homosexuality is becoming more and more important and prominent to the point where when we talk about it, we tend to get um, emotional attachments or get frustrated by certain things when it might not actually be there at all. It's not part of the answering of the question or part of the basic theology. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be very careful and clear with that one so that I made it clear what the church's stance is and some of the philosophical and theological framework behind it but also not judge or condemn people. Yeah. That's not the, the goal. Well, that was the big takeaway that I think I got from it was it wasn't, you know, against or whatever. It was just people are people. Mm-hmm. Don't put, put them out in the corner or judge them or hurt them for who they are. And that was one of my big hopes for that, that it wasn't just the presentation of Catholic theology, mm-hmm. but also a recognition that the church is compassionate and wants to reach out and guide these people and actually have a place for them in the Catholic Communion. Yeah. It's just a different place than some people would anticipate. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge. That's the difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you handled it really well, so that was one of my favorite episodes, actually. Um, So this is kind of a broad question, but did you learn anything along the way? And are there specific things that you learned about some of these topics that maybe you didn't think you were going to? One of the great joys when I led it with a group was it wasn't just my opinions anymore. Mm-hmm. Other people would chime in with their own perspectives and whatnot. The first time, the first topic I led was, do we have any evidence for God or Jesus? Mm-hmm. I had a few atheists join us who had different realms of science that I'm not familiar with, such as quantum mechanics, and they brought in information from that. And that was really neat to see how all this integrates with the scientific realm and the greater modern world. Real quick, can you give t- context to what you're talking about? Um, because some listeners might not know that you did held these topics in uh-huh. discussion before making it a podcast episode. Yeah, so the way this worked is for every question I had, I led one group here at Christ the King, which is mainly just our campus ministry students, 
but also some parishioners who wanted to join us. Mm-hmm. And the goal of that was to make it more of a discussion. Then the second time in the same week, the next day, yeah. I would go on the University of Montana campus and let anyone who wants to come and we discuss the topic. Yeah. Where I'd present the basics of the, the framework and then we'd kind of bounce off and go different directions and ask questions and whatnot. I tried to, for the sake of this podcast, bring in the different questions and opinions and thoughts from those different groups. Yeah. So it's not just me anymore, mm-hmm. but there's kind of a wide range of thoughts going into it. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, we can circle back to what you learned, ah, talking yes. about quantum theories and stuff like so that. So one guy brought up, when it comes to the idea of, is there evidence for God or Jesus, that in the quantum mechanics, in the realm of physics of quantum mechanics, that uh, we think of things as ordered and structured, and that the whole universe has kind of a, a law behind it that governs it, but in the realm of quantum mechanics, that's not the case, it's more random. And he said, if that's the case, and the quantum mechanics says the universe is random, then we can't claim causality anymore. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was fascinating, but I also wonder how much quantum mechanics can truly say about what they know. It's such a new realm and such a um, difficult realm to study that making a conclusion of that gravity seems a little premature at the moment. But let's see what happens. Maybe it will be the general conclusion later on. Or the idea of causality or randomness has to change a little bit to match with where their research is going. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to play with and to really grasp these concepts from new angles. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear more about that sort of thing because right now I have questions about quantum theory and how that affects people's perceptions to religion, but I imagine that that's not something any of us know a whole lot about other than yeah, what you were told. Yeah, that would have to be a topic one, of its own. We'll that one see. discussion... Um, so that I mean that's good though that you got to learn from people by hearing their questions and yeah. explanations for things. Um, yeah. Okay. So for all of your talk, all of your topics, all of your topics, you bring up the like you identify the question very thoroughly, so that way there's no kind of gray area. You're like, this is what I'm talking about, and then you explain each one of those things that goes into it. Um, so was it hard to come from? more than one perspective about each question because from the outside it sounds like you'd look at it from a religious perspective but then you'd also look at it from like an ethical perspective um so was that hard to balance or did one help the other in understanding depends on the question when mm-hmm. it's something like what does the church say about da 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 yeah pretty straightforward it, yeah i don't have a lot of leeway mm-hmm. but when it comes to something that's more broad it was fun to be able to play in new realms and it's not necessarily hard because I think this way all, all the time. I like to challenge my own opinions and kind of wonder about what other possibilities there might be. Mm-hmm. But the principal reason why I was careful in all of my questions and to define all my terms is because most of the time when we start to address a question and we're actually in a dialogue discussing it, we get far enough in and realize we're actually not talking about the same thing. Yeah, We have two totally different definitions for this word. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was clear with every word I used that was in the question and carefully worded the questions yeah. so that it was clear what I meant and where the question was going and also that we can agree to the same basic terms before we head into a, d- a conclusion mm-hmm. or even analysis of the question. Yeah. So what was the research process like for um, most of these questions? Well, a lot of them I know because I've studied them before. Yeah. So from all my d- work in... Um, my master's program, and then from seminary formation, where we discussed and debated these with the 
with amongst each other. Mm-hmm. I knew quite a bit of it, but some of it I wanted some more opinions, or I went out to various places just to ensure that I had the right conclusions. Yeah. Such as I'd go to Catholic Answers, because I know they're going to be very precise and proper about what they're going to say. Yeah. And I, I can take that and soften it, be more pastoral about it, mm-hmm. so it's not so harsh. Sometimes they come up with a harshness. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'd go online and just research. Like when I worked on the question, two questions, the one on is there evidence for God or Jesus and is there objective morality, I watched several YouTube videos from atheists to get a sense of what their perspective is and what the other perspectives might be so that I can bring in all that information and balance it out a little bit more. Yeah. So are there, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things. Are there certain materials or um, resources that you'd recommend to people that are on either side of the spectrum, whether one's devout or one is atheist, to just learn more about these sort of topics? Mm. For church-related topics, Catholic Answers is very good. Yeah. They're very precise in what they say. It can Sometimes they just answer the question and don't talk around it, like I try to do in all these series, and that can lead to some limitations. Mm-hmm. I've heard the best book out there is Catholic, Catholicism for Dummies. I hear it's a really excellent book. I should have actually read it before I made this statement, but hey, whatever. <laughs> Could be good. Part Could of it is good. it's being able to dialogue, discuss, and find people you can ask questions and also be able to ask follow-up questions with. Mm-hmm. That's a, a great of great importance for knowing these topics. When it comes to more secular or non-faith-based topics or topics that bridge the two, I like to go to the two extremes. What's the extreme on the faith end? What's the extreme on the secular end? And then kind of get a sense of both of those and then put the pieces together or hear multiple perspectives. Because mm-hmm. one perspective is usually not enough. I want to kind of get a sense of what's the general feel out there and then work through all of that. So kind of being the bridge between topics yeah. to make it one thing instead of so parceled out. Um, was there like We talked about the topic that was hardest to talk about for you, or maybe the hardest to research, was there a topic that was your favorite that you got to talk about because maybe you you knew more about it or it was just interesting because you learned a lot? I enjoy talking about morality. I really do. It's just fun to explore, and the best part in my mind is coming up with new analogies and scenarios where you have to kind of be creative and be like, okay, what if I change this little piece and now make this whole story out of it? Mm -hmm. I was just leading a group last night in which we were doing that, and... We talk about homework at first, and it's like, well, what if it's this kind of homework? What if it's that kind of homework? Or what if, um, what was the other good one we were doing? It was, I think it had something to do with Nazis and hiding Jews. It's not the common one that everyone brings up. You know, everyone likes to hide Jews yeah. and talk about morality related to it. So if I'm hiding Jews, can I lie? Can I not? What's where, How am I culpable for oh, murder if I go with this? What is yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's so many complicated... Morality's fun. Yeah. It's like so the... heavily nuanced. Then we talk about stealing. That was the big one. Yeah. If I stole because my family's hungry, lay miserable. If I stole because I wanted it, what if I stole from someone who stole from me? Is that mm-hmm. now stealing or is that getting my stuff back? Yeah. It's almost like you're asking the question, what is truth? Oh, yeah. Who knows? God does. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just that one. Um so this is kind of, this is a very broad question, um, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Oh. But, um, are there changes that you think the church should make? Ooh. That is a very strange and difficult question. Yeah. Because, I mean, I mean, it can go a lot of ways. You could say, and I'm not saying 
you have to say one thing or the other to imply anything, but just a general question. So here's the challenge when we talk about change. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really address it in the question, can the church change or be wrong? Mm -hmm. Whenever we change, it means that something is different. And when something's different, it can be both good and bad. Mm -hmm. And usually it is both. Changes usually lead to both good and bad. So the question is, what's the good that comes and what's the bad? And is this the right change to make? Because I know a lot of people are looking at things like the sex abuse crisis and mm -hmm. saying we need accountability for bishops. Yeah. Yet if we have accountability for bishops, what does that place them as far as a, a leadership role for the rest of us? Does that mean that now there's a group above them and that they're not the highest authority in the diocese, which then leads to a change in our theology? We don't see the bishops in the same way anymore. Does that mean no accountability for bishops? No, it means we have to be careful in what we're doing so that we don't lose some of the important elements and relational elements, but also protect people. Yeah. So the, the big question underlying that is, although the change needs to happen for the sake of protecting people, what's the right change? What's the right way to go? And then people bring this up to me all the time, so I'm just going to bring it up here as a way to address it. Mm -hmm. Married priesthood or women priests? Those two changes will cause fundamental changes throughout the entire church if we were to go that route. Mm -hmm. A married priest is not like a celibate priest. As a celibate priest, I make the money I get is considered a living wage stipend so I can continue to survive. Mm -hmm. It's much better than that, I'll be very blunt. I make quite a bit more than would be considered absolutely necessary to survive. But I also have a lot of issues like car payments, insurance on my car, mm -hmm. medical expenses, um, living, general living expenses. If I want to go on vacation, I have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. Whereas a religious would not have that. What so, is, can you define, I don't know what that means. Off the top a religious? Of yeah. So that would be like a monk, a brother, a sister, a nun. They live in a community that has this giant pool of money that they share amongst all the brothers, sisters, monks, nuns who live in that area, in that, that monastery. Okay. So... They bring in the money from several sources, either from people giving the money, from works that they do, from businesses they run. All these things bring in money, mm -hmm. and so they choose how they're going to spend it. This person can go on a vacation, but this person can't. These things are needed for the, the, the collective good of all of us. These things you just want. Whereas I don't have that. I manage my own finances. So it's a lot more, one is more communal and the other is more independent? Correct. Okay. So if we had married priests, I would have to double, if not triple, the amount I make to care for a family. Because mm -hmm. I need to be the provider of this family. So the parish would have to pay for all of that. That's the system we have, which means they'll have to provide a lot more money. Not only that, they'll have to recognize I can't always be there with them. I have a dual need now. A need to spend time with my family, a need for my parishioners. Mm -hmm. That's a fundamental change. Similarly, you can't move married priests very frequently because you have to uproot their entire family, which if the wife has a job, she then has to find new employment. If the kids are in school, you have to pull them out of school and move them. There's serious problems there. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is I, as a priest and a celibate priest, can live in a rectory with many other priests. We can live together. Married priests can't do that. Why? Their house will take up the entire space because their family has to live there. Okay. It'd be weird for two families to live together in the same house. It could work, yes, mm -hmm. but it'd be strange for us. Mm -hmm. And then, if the priest dies, does the family still get to live in the house? Do they now have to move and find their own place? There's logistical problems there, too. Mm -hmm. But there's also a good side of it. I don't want to just color it in a negative way. 
The good side is that they now understand married life. They yeah. now have children, understand the issues with children. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. Women priests have a totally new issue. Celibate women priests. Can you imagine a seminary, which was right now all men, now is co-ed, and they're all working and living together. Seminaries would have to radically change. There would have to be a women's dorm and a men's dorm, because they can't cohabitate. That would be weird and probably cause lots of issues. There would be logistical things. There would be different formation programs, because men and women are different, and they need different things. And then if in a diocese, especially a small one like the Diocese of Helena, you can't have a male and a female priest living in the same rectory. That's problematic. Can I ask why? Like, why would that be problematic? It's scandalous overall. Just in general? Yeah. And it could be situationally problematic for those living together. Mm-hmm. Because what happens if they fall in love? And they, yeah. <laughs> that would be weird. Or what happens if there's disputes about treatment? Mm-hmm. Like one harassed the other or one's coming on to the other. Mm-hmm. It gets weird. Interesting. Um, so you talked about marriage a lot in that. Um, and I have a couple or one main question. Um, so who in the church can get married and who cannot? And then where does that come from? Like, so, cause some, if a pre, and we've talked about this before. So if someone becomes a deacon, if they're married before uh, and it. then become one, or is that a priest or a deacon can get married after they become a deacon? What's the, I'll just speak for a yeah, while. I'll get yeah. it all covered. Okay. So first of all, marriage is considered a sacrament, mm-hmm. and it's a sacrament that the husband and wife are the celebrants of the sacrament. The mm-hmm. priest is nearly merely a witness. Okay. So that means the two people feel called by God, and they celebrate it. They wed each other. Mm-hmm. In doing so, we say that everyone has a right to be married as long as they fit the requirements for marriage, namely that they're a man and a woman. They have free consent to marry each other, mm-hmm. and there's nothing binding them, forcing them into this marriage. So if someone pulled a shotgun to my head and said, marry my daughter, that would be an invalid marriage. Mm-hmm. Or if the society encouraged me to just marry whoever I saw first, mm-hmm. that would also be considered invalid because I didn't have full consent to marry that person. Yeah. Or if I'm intoxicated, or if I'm not mentally capable of engaging in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Those are all things that would hinder me. Yeah. Now, as far as moving a step out, um, deacons can get married. But the requirement is the deacon has to be married before he's ordained a deacon. Okay. That's Priests, however, can also get married in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. In the event that they are in another Christian tradition and decide to enter the Catholic Church, and they were a um, minister, pastor, some sort in the other faith, they can maintain that, become a priest, and remain married. Mm-hmm. It'd be immoral for us to say, break up your marriage so you can become a priest. Why not just say, we're sorry you have the vocation of married life, you should focus on that. Like, why do we also allow them to then come and be priests? There are several reasons for that. First of all, the Latin rite is the only one that has a celibate priesthood. Oh. There are 24 rites in the Catholic Church that span the entire scope of Christianity. Some of these include the um, Byzantine rite, the Ukrainian rite, the Armenian Rite, the Coptic Rite, and the... Well, there's more. I can't... There's one I'm trying to remember, and I absolutely cannot remember it, but that's all right. Maybe it'll come to So these are some of them. The Latin Rite is only one of them. The Latin Rite is what most people are familiar with. Yeah. It's what they think of when they think Catholic Church. The Latin Rite is the only celibate one. All the rest of them have married clergy, Mm -hmm. but they don't have married bishops. 
Across the board, all bishops have to be celibate. There's no exceptions, even in the Greek Orthodox Church. So, because the uh, celibacy is considered a discipline, mm -hmm. it's a constraint put the, that the Catholic Church has put on the priesthood for the sake of the Latin Rite, therefore the, the Church can dispense that discipline for the sake of certain people. For the instance, if someone that was Episcopalian decided to come in and they were a priest before, we're not going to remove the, them from both of their ministerial roles or vocations, but let them celebrate both. Mm -hmm. Would they still have to receive holy orders? That's an interesting Catholic question church. that I'd have to look up. Okay. Because I think, yes, no, okay, I do know because I've heard of this happening. So they would have to go through and be ordained, but the they would remove the vow or the promise they make of celibacy because Cause they're already clearly married. they're not going to live it. <laughs> interesting. Okay. And there is a yeah. talk that the church could remove the discipline of celibacy. It is something not intrinsic to the sacrament, mm -hmm. but something we've added as a way of expressing both the eschatological reality that one day all people will be united fully to God and that marriage is only expression of that here and now, but also the recognition that I've given myself for my people so, and I've laid down my life for their sake. So that sacrament came later. Celibacy? Yeah. Celibacy was from the beginning. Okay. In the 5th century, there was a huge movement in the Christian church in that celibacy was the right way to go. Mm -hmm. And everyone was starting to be celibate. And then people said, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. <laughs> we need children too. Yeah. So um, we've swung back and forth in many ways. Okay. So, and then as part of that, like, you marry the church? Is that part of it? And for... Technically speaking, the bishops the are the ones a, that do that. Technically a she? Yeah, so and the church is considered a she. Why? Uh, as why? the bride of Christ, as the... Oh. Yeah, the mother of the faithful. Mm -hmm. the, the We even built churches to look like arcs or houses or ships. Like the mother ship. Mm -hmm. That's on our pilgrim way to heaven. So oh. all that is written in our theology as a recognition that the church is considered our mother. It's, her arms draw us in. We are given birth by her, such as baptism, mm -hmm. which is why baptismal oh. fonts are round. Yes. Fascinating. Um, and that's also why the priest stands as only male, because mm -hmm. now he's in a spousal relationship with his church. Technically speaking, bishops are the most prominent in that way. They wear a ring signifying their marriage to their diocese and they have a more prominent role over it as the, the highest authority of that diocese. But, nevertheless, priests still have some functional role as uh, or spouse of their church, mm -hmm. father of their people. So what about sisters and nuns? Do they marry Christ? Christ. Okay. Mm -hmm. And some of them, especially like the Carmelite nuns, have a very elaborate and beautiful rite in which they put on wedding dresses and veils and full-on, like, marry Jesus. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. It's a, it's a vivid... That's image. also why they wear veils. Their veils are their hair, their new life. What are some of the bigger, like, misconceptions that you think people have about Catholicism or theology in the modern world right now? And then, like, what is your response to those, if you can think of any off the top of your head? I think the biggest challenge people have with the Catholic Church is when they see it as an institution. Mm -hmm. And they see it only as an institution. As though it has a hierarchy, it has a rules, it has a system, and that's the way it goes. Mm -hmm. That is not really the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is part that, part family, part evangelization. Okay. It, the goal of the Church is always to go out and make new disciples. It's always meant to 
train people so that they can bring people to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is we think of the Pope as the head of the church. In some sense, they're right. Realistically, Jesus is the head of the church mm-hmm. and will always be the head of the church, which is why someone like St. Pope John Twenty-Third has such a beautiful prayer saying he said before he went to bed. He said, Lord, this is your church. I'm going to bed. We can only do so much, and mm-hmm. we're not going to be perfect. We're not supposed to be. Pope Francis made that clear when he said, this is not a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. There is also a misconception out there that the church has to be perfect. The church has never been perfect. The church will never be perfect until Jesus completely cleanses her and we're in heaven. Then it'll be perfect. Until then, we're going to have problems. Always have problems. And there's a beauty to that. If you look across history, you'll see how many problems there were and how it always kept going, even in the midst of it. Someone would rise and fight for change to bring it back to its core, and then you'd fall away again, and someone else would rise and just keep this, this dynamic of constant... Excuse me, this dynamic of constant renewal. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then I have another question. I've heard the term lay people thrown around, mm. thrown around a lot, and I've also heard that a lay person can become a bishop. So what is a lay person? Can a lay person become... Or a cardinal? And then, like, what's the difference between a lay person and the people that work in a church, and then... Okay, so laity, the word lady, lady comes from the Greek word laos, which means people. So basically it's a term to recognize the people of God who are not ordained or religious. Mm -hmm. Who are not. Who are not. Okay. So clergy is the word used for those who are ordained. Okay. Religious are those used used for those who are in vows. Also consecrated person. Everyone else is the people of God, the Mm -hmm. laity. Mm -hmm. And we put such distinctions here that I think are problematic. As though one's better or worse than the other. They just are. Yeah. They feed each other. They mutually support each other. They're necessary, all of them, to make the church who she is. If we said the laity is not important and the clergy are, that's clericalism. If we say the clergy are not important and the laity are more important, that's also clericalism. In the opposite sense. Mm-hmm. It's anti-clericalism. <laughs> they have to be balanced the same and also recognize their own intrinsic and important value for the church. Mm-hmm. And then, so, bishop, cardinal. The only way to get to be a bishop is you're a layperson who is ordained a deacon, ordained a priest, and then ordained a bishop. Okay. So you have to start as a layperson. No one uh, starts as a priest. Okay. Like, I was a priest when I was born. <laughs> uh-huh. Really. Well, but when we're baptized, technically. Different kind of priest. <laughs> Different kind of priest. So that's the priesthood of the faithful versus the ministerial priesthood. Cardinal, however, is an advisory role to the pope. Mm-hmm. So the Pope names a certain cardinals, a certain number of cardinals. I think the total number now is 240. It's either 240 or 280. keeps changing. I keep getting confused. That's a lot. Yeah. So he names these people to be his advisors. Mm-hmm. And technically, according to canon law, a woman could become a cardinal if the Pope wished. Mm-hmm. Even a married person could become a cardinal because that's just an advisory role. They would not be ordained a bishop and mm-hmm. take that role. But most of the time, especially in the last century and we can go back quite a few centuries before that, the popes have always named bishops to become cardinals. Okay. And that's just easier. Just has also, there's never been anyone who wasn't a bishop? In the last who, 200 years, no. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to change eventually? I don't know. If you had a guess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't even have a guess on this one. Okay. Because there was talk that John Paul II would name Mother Teresa to be a cardinal. Mm-hmm. She would not have liked that. She would be very upset. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
And then, so, even though they may be a cardinal, does not make them electors or nominated to become pope. Mm -hmm. Only those who are have the potential to become pope, namely male, celibate, and under the age of 80, can, can participate in conclave. And only those in conclave can become pope. Under the age of 80. Correct. Okay. Pope Francis was 79, poor guy. <laughs> he had one year to go. One year. Just one. Interesting. Um, so, another question I have, it's kind of about the order of things, is how does someone get named a saint? How do you become a saint? Ooh. So, process. So, first of all, the die. person... Yeah. It has, has to be posthumous, right? person is born, <laughs> then they die. Mm -hmm. After they die, and they decide that they want to open what's called a cause for canonization. That petition goes to their bishop, the bishop sends it to Rome, Rome decides whether to open it or not, and then once if they decide to open it, they'll compile all the information they can about this person. Literally, all the information they can. Mm -hmm. What they're looking for is one principal thing, that the person lived heroic virtue. Not just virtue, not just was a good person, but like, top-notch, heroic virtue level. If they have lived heroic virtue level, they are named a servant of God. So what is an example of heroic virtue? Martyrdom. Like Dying for your faith. Cause. Or even like, Francis of um, St. Francis Xavier, who went across the world baptizing as many people as he could. He got up in the realm of 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. Or like Blessed Stanley Rother, who desired to serve his people, even in the midst of assaults, uh, violence, potential death threats, all these things, his people mattered most. That's heroic virtue. Mm -hmm. So once the person has been declared to have heroic virtue, they're named a servant of God. Now we wait. If not only they get the level of, yes, you lived a heroic life, we acknowledge that, but now we're starting to see evidence of holiness in their life, they get moved to venerable. Now we have to wait for a couple different things to happen. So once all that's done, and we declare that the person ha has a worthy life of being a saint, we're waiting for posthumous miracles. That means miracles after they've died. Mm -hmm. Now the miracles are very carefully chosen. What it means is they have to have the following criteria. It has to be a miracle that has no medical or scientific possibility of being not a miracle. So there has to be no reasonable reason to believe that it was naturally done. Second of all, it has to be tied to that saint. You can't mm -hmm. just be like, look, there's a miracle. Let's just make this person a saint. Yeah. No, it has to be completely tied to that saint. And the first one that's declared makes the person blessed. The second one makes them a saint. Okay. And then there are worthy of veneration by the whole church. A few fun examples for you. Um, St. Kateri Tekakwitha was up for canonization, but they needed the miracles. Well, there was a boy in Seattle who was dying from a flesh-eating bacteria that was antibiotic-resistant. They said, he's going to die. There's nothing we can do. Well, this person stopped in to visit, and they said, hey, have you asked Kateri Tekakwitha to pray for your son? Like, no. Well, the boy was native, She's native. They thought that's a cool connection, so they asked for her intercession. The next day, the boy woke up with no flesh-eating bacteria, no scars from it, completely healed. So all that gets documented in the medical records. All that goes to Rome. They adjudicate it. They ask for the witnesses of the doctors. They ask for their specialists there to review it to say, is there any possible natural explanation for this? If there is no possible explanation for it, it's declared a miracle. And since they asked for Kateri Tekakwitha to pray for him, it is now linked to her, which was the last miracle they needed to declare her a saint. 
when did the process start for her, and then when did she officially become? 1720. Okay. 1980 was like when she was declared a saint? No, early 2000s. Yeah. 2006, it eight, was somewhere more there. recent, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Some can take decades, if not centuries. Yeah. St. Albert the Great died in 1290, 1280, somewhere right in there. He was honored by the mm. 13th century, by the end of the 14th century, sorry. But he was not declared a saint until 1949. So, That's eight centuries. Yeah, relatively long time to wait. Yeah. He doesn't care. He's in heaven. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> another good example of what I mean is uh, one of the newest proclaimed miracles for Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Mm. There was a couple in, I think it was Chicago. Bridget's favorite. That they were about to have a child. They're really excited. The doctor said, oh, everything's going great. You should be fine. And then right at the moment where they're about to give birth, a nurse comes and says, oh, we sorry, we misread everything. Your child's dead. So, she gives birth, they put the child in the morgue, priest comes in, and they told him what's going on, he said, well, can I see the child? They said, no, he's in the morgue. So he asked them a little bit more, kind of pleaded with them, they eventually agreed. So he went down to the morgue, pulled out the child, he touched the relic of Archbishop Fulton Sheen to the child's body, and immediately came back to life. This is weird. So, they took records of it, like they should as a hospital, they were interested in this, so they sent all the information to Rome. Mm -hmm. They had 400 specialists review this. 399 said there is no natural explanation for this. One, however, dissented and said, no, there's a way the brain could be in which it was just like the brain reactivating or something. I don't get how it works. So they're like, one was this dissenter, person a doctor? Really, really, do we want to go forward with this when it's just one dissenter? And they said, yes, we need to prove that there's no natural explanation. So they flew the child to Rome to have this doctor evaluate him. He said, nope, there's no way that could be the po possible. So they declared it a miracle. Linked it with Archbishop Fulton Sheen is what was necessary for him to become uh, blessed. But he's not blessed. Because they haven't finished the process yet. Oh, they're killing me! <laughs> so here's the problem with the process. The process is hindered because the place where he grew up and the place where he was an archbishop are fighting for where they sh it should be. And as long as they continue to fight... That's okay. So that that's my question. You mean like the canonization process, which bishop the is in charge? Canonization process is on hold because the bishops from those two dioceses cannot agree where he should be buried and where he should be canonized. And because there's dispute, Rome will not proceed. Why won't Rome? So there has decide? to be one location as to where the bishop or where the person in question is going to be canonized. Kind of. Right now, it's more of who is, which. Which diocese is is he more tied to as to where he'll be venerated? Okay. Like, where is his body going to be buried? Where is he most, where did he serve the most? It's a weird dispute. Yeah, it's why, a really why does that scandalous matter? one. Why does that matter so much? It's only because of dispute. The dispute matters more than anything else. If one bishop it's, said, fine, you can have him, done. But they also know that having a saint in their area boosts oh, faith. Mm brings tourism, all these things, there's factors involved. It seems kind of selfish to just not have it done regardless. Yeah. So in the most recent news, this is slightly tangential, but since it's Fulton Sheen, I feel compelled. Um, so the the Diocese of Peoria, which is where he was born and he grew up and like served at that church, they've been fighting with the Archdiocese of New York. Recently, the New York Court of Appeals favored in 
um, favored on the side of Peoria, and they were like, oh, yeah, no, like, you should totally have his body. Where's Peoria? I haven't, What's Illinois. Illinois, okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I haven't heard any developments after that, because I want to know, like, if they are going to disinter his body and move it to Illinois, like, when is that going to happen? Because it'd be cool to see. And the canonization. Because that dispute finished and that the Court of Appeals said go to Peoria, his process is now moving forward. Oh, And he's good. up for canonization now. I think, I guess, yeah, I mean, we could do a whole different conversation <laughs> on Fulton Sheen. But it's frustrating because, yeah. like, he was buried in the cathedral in New York, which he didn't want to be buried in the cathedral. He had specifically said, Army bury me in this, this cemetery, yeah. which is still in the Diocese of New York. And then Illinois was like, no, 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 we have a stronger connection. It's like, why not just honor his wishes and bury him in the cemetery where he asked to be buried? Yeah, wouldn't his wishes kind of trounce everything else? It's so that was the example with Stanley Rother, who his family wanted his body in Oklahoma, but really he was a person of Guatemala. And so they made a, an agreement mm-hmm. that his heart would be in Guatemala, his body would be in Oklahoma. But yet he was canonized in the diocese in Guatemala because that's where he lived that's where he was martyred that's where his life was spent so going off of that what's the deal with like where isn't there like a heart that they're taking around the St. Country? John Vianney St. John Vianney so what is that about and like was it because there's that one and there was the guy that had his, the holes in his hands Pio something? Padre Pio Padre Pio I don't know okay. did he have the stigmata I think, yes he did oh, okay he so, now, though. so like, what is the, what is that? And then, like, what is that talking about? about? Relics? Relics, okay. okay. So relics, relics are items that re- pertain to the saints. There's three classes. Only saints, nothing else. Um, give me a moment. So okay. There's three classes. First class is a piece of them. Finger, okay. hair, heart, whatever. I know it sounds gross. Move on. So that's first class. It means part of them. Second class is something they used in their life. A veil, clothing, books, whatever. Third class is something that touched a first class relic. The whole point of all this, although it mm-hmm. sounds incredibly like legalistic, is the recognition that saints are real people mm-hmm. and that we are still connected to them. Okay. That they exist in heaven, that's where they are now, they still have a connection with us, and that these things remind us of their life, their ministry, and our call to holiness. So that when the heart of St. Javiani went on tour through the to Montana, both dioceses. It was a recognition for all people that, yes, he truly was a person. There is his heart. Yeah. This is the virtues he lived. This is what he's calling all people to, to live this life of holiness and to follow his example to some extent. That's the point of relics. Relics remind us that things were actually real, such as the relic of the true cross. It's not like, yeah, there's an idea that the cross could be. No, here it is. Here's a piece of it. Or the veil of Mary, which surprises me. Or the two weird ones that are in the Vatican that never get shown because we can't authenticate them. The breast milk of Mary and a feather of the Holy Spirit. The feather? What? Exactly. That's why they get locked up. Feather of the Holy Spirit? It sounds ridiculous. (laughs) I even think it's ridiculous. Where's the veil of Mary? It's in Portland. Oh. Oregon? Mm -hmm. Not Maine? We saw it when we went to visit the Dominican Priory that's over there. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised by it too. Yeah, you're like, oh, cool. But How do they authenticate whole, something like that? Yeah, couple different ways. So either you know the person, and you're like, here it is. It's been passed down. When yeah. it's passed down, it's been passed down with with records. 
that okay. every person who passes it on has to write a note saying, I pass it on to this person. So we can follow back the entire lineage of whoever had it back to the original source, which is the person themselves. So is the main reason why the two weird ones are locked up is because they're the two oldest ones? No, because they're weird. How are you supposed to authenticate Mary's breast milk? How do you authenticate, milk? yeah. So there's not any authentication of those no, things. No, but it's we don't want things people someone start just, venerating them. Someone just said it was? Yeah. Oh. And because we have no authentication and we are afraid of false veneration, mm -hmm. they get locked up and nobody oh. gets to see them. Because we don't want to misuse them or dissuade people away from true stuff. Interesting. How long have those things been there? Well, Mary That's lived in 2,000 years ago, so... Is... So you probably don't know because you haven't seen it. No, and I don't really want to. <laughs> I would just like to know, like, how, why did they think it was Mary's milk in the first place? Is it, like, uncurdled? Is it, like, it is there something miraculous about it? Like, what know. made them think, oh, this might be Mary's? I don't know. But there is a place in Bethlehem where when the Holy Family was leaving Bethlehem to go to Egypt, they stopped in this cave that was made of red rock. And while Mary was breastfeeding Jesus, some of her breast milk spilled on the ground and turned the entire cave white. What? Yep, it's called the Milk Grotto. I've seen it. I've what? been there. The whole cave is white. It's an actual place. It's an actual place. And they shave off pieces of the rock, mm -hmm. and they give it to people who are struggling to have children. And they've had over 400 reported miraculous births from this. I have seen what? one. A miraculous birth from the shavings of the rock? Mm -hmm. It's like if someone just was like sterile or something yep huh how when did that story start oh. of the cave yeah. i've never heard that yeah, never heard wow that. well there's so many things that you get to the point where how much can we really learn everything if you go and walk through jerusalem and all of israel you'll realize there's a lot more to it than we remembered so this story goes back third fourth century fifth century and they've been monitoring this cave since the 16th, 17th century, somewhere oh, wow. there. It's fairly old. It's not modern. You can't just, like, go up to it and shave off your own piece of rock, right? They you don't to, like, like you doing that? They you sell it for like, you? It? They okay. sell it. They don't just give it to people? They they would. It's like a buck for a little packet of it. Mm, interesting. And the money goes so, to protect it more than anything oh, else. Oh, okay. Because what? it's the Franciscans that run it. It's not an independent organization. Hmm. So would those... Shavings of the rock be considered a relic? That sounds relic, and especially if it... Huh, I would go with yes. So it'd be... I don't know like with a class. Third? Oh, that's right, because we don't marry his body, so third? we don't even know. <laughs> yeah. That's huh. a weird realm that doesn't fit the normal stuff. Interesting. So, and, a, and please, feel free to get tangential with this question. Are there, like, what are some, like, interesting historical figures in Catholicism? I know you've oh brought up boy. quite a few, but are there some that are, like, really out there? Some or great ones. Interesting uh, or funny? So or? Pope Celestine V is one I always like to go back to because he's important historically for us today. Mm -hmm. Pope Celestine V was named Pope at a time in which the conclave was going on for a long time. They just couldn't elect a Pope for whatever reason. It went on for almost two years. And so as they're... Debating, all the cardinals are getting together, debating who's to be the next pope, nothing's happening. He, a little a monk in a, a monastery a little ways away, wrote a letter saying, hurry up, we need a pope. So he sent it. They sent him a letter back saying, it's you! <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations! So he was named pope. He took the name Celestine V after his predecessor, Celestine IV. 
He spent nine months in office and then changed the rules so that he could resign. He resigned and went back to his monastery. So is that back when whatever he said was infallible and that's why he was able to do that? No. So the Pope can choose how the next Pope is chosen. Okay. So he chose, he technically changed the rules not so he could resign. He changed the rules so that only those in conclave could be elected Pope. So his rules for that, not like the world, not Papal infallibility. Correct. Okay. So the 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 previous Pope, so let's say Pope Francis mm-hmm. right now, if he realizes he's dying or whatever, he can write the rules for how the next Pope is elected. Oh, so it can be as specific as... The only conclave, or it could be anyone, or it could be conclave has to figure it out in this amount of time, or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sets the rules, for the most part. There are certain rules he can't change, okay. but... You know. Then we have poor Pope Formosus. Oh, that guy. Was that this one? Pope Formosus is a 9th century saint. No, sorry, not saint. 9th century pope. My <laughs> fault. That was quite a misstep. 9th century pope who was living his life as a pope. He got a letter from the church in Alexandria saying, we have a dispute. Will you settle it for us? He read the letter and went, oh yeah, this seems fine. Signed off on it. Well, it turns out, in the context of the letter, that was a heresy. Oh. And a big problem, too. It led to a huge problem in Alexandria, led to a huge problem in Rome. The monks of Mount Athos in Greek were the one in Greece, sorry, were the ones who had the right teaching, held it against Pope Formosus. When they found out all this had happened, he had already died. They decided to exhume his body, oh, dress okay. him in this papal is, regalia, yeah. put him on the seat of St. Peter, try him as a heretic, then afterwards they threw his body in the river. Then they take him out after that and then rebury him? Or is that different? I don't think so. I think they just let him run down the river. Oh. It's rude. Yeah. Kinda sad. He was a pope. Yeah. Right? That was going to be my follow-up question, was which one was the one that got tried after he died? Yep, that's the one. Huh. Yeah. When was that again? Ninth century. It's like 868, 870, somewhere in there, 880. Yeah, latter half of the ninth century. Okay. Interesting. Any more kind of big ones that you can think of? In a more positive way, we have yes. Pope Gregory the Great, who was pope from 590 to 604. He was kind of an amazing man. He didn't want to be Pope. He loved his life in the monastery. Absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. But then the Pope, noticing his talents, named him the seventh deacon of Rome, which is the highest official in Rome right after the Pope. As a seventh deacon, he did his duties, whatnot. That Pope died. The next Pope, the, in electing the next Pope, they named him. So he became Pope, and he lamented it immensely, saying, I don't like the small talk. I don't like the things I have to do, but I do it for the sake of the church. Mm-hmm. As Pope, he now dealt with a flood that ravaged the city of Rome and killed off a third of the population and led to a lot of disease. He dealt with all of that. He was the only leading official in Rome because the Pope, the Emperor of Constantinople had moved to Constantinople, started the Byzantine Empire, and left Rome alone. So he's the only ruling official. Mm-hmm. He also had the Vangals attacking Rome, which means he had to fight against them. Remember, he's the Pope. He doesn't have an army. Yeah. So what does he do? He goes out there himself and signs a treaty with them that they don't sack the city of Rome. That's pretty bold. Yeah. He also led, led a lot of different levels of teaching and really did advance the church immensely in his time. He started the phrase, the servant of the servants of Rome, the servants of the servants of God, which is his title. He is the servant of the servant of God. And advanced the papacy quite a bit in his time. Was it the was it a pope who was 
up against the Huns. Was yes. it, and who like just went out with like his cross or whatever it was or who his was staff that? or and kind of just like stood out there and uh-huh. sent so, them away. Said leave. Yep. Get off my lawn. In the name of Jesus the Nazarene. <laughs> it works. I command right? you to leave. Well, like, oh, I guess we should go. It's happened many times. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I can't like remember that. who though. I apologize. That's all right. I don't know either. So. That's <laughs> okay. Jake, any insight? <laughs> no. Um, so, okay, how, on the subject of popes, how does one become the pope? Ooh, so. Now, anyway. There's a great YouTube video on this that's kind of satirical. In that oh, it, with the stick figures? Yes. I love that one. So it basically says, if you want to become a pope, how would you do it? Yeah. So it, it's more of like, I'm going to become pope than it is, how would someone become pope? Mm. So I'm going to flip it around just slightly. So if you, if someone, how someone becomes pope is, first of all, they're a, a man who gets ordained a priest. Has to be a man. Yes. Okay. Because you can't be a woman priest. Oh. So, first of all, you get ordained a priest. As a priest, you do a good job as a priest or whatever, so that the Pope names you as a bishop. So now you're a bishop. Hanging out as a bishop, doing bishop things. Generally, today, you'd move from bishop to archbishop and then archbishop to cardinal, mm-hmm. so that in your diocese as a bishop, things are going well, they realize your talents, abilities, whatever, and name you an archbishop which means you're now in a more prestigious, larger diocese. That's all it is. As an archbishop, the cardinal recognizes your... Sorry, the pope recognizes your abilities and wants you as an advisor. So he appoints you as cardinal. As a cardinal, being under the age of 80, uh, male, who's also bishop, helps. You are now... The pope dies. Pope has died. Now all the cardinals that are possible electors get together, and they get locked in the Sistine Chapel more or less. Really now it's ceremoniously locked. It used to be like full-on locked. You cannot leave. It was so great. Yeah, they have this tape that they run and they tie it and they seal it shut so that no one can leave, but there's a second tunnel that they go to to get out to their hotel rooms. So. And fire escape, you know, just yeah. in case. You need, to have, you need to have another way out. We don't want all the cardinals to die. And then exactly. What do we yeah. So, the cardinals get together, they vote. The first four days, there are four votes a day. All the cardinals vote. Then the, all the votes are read out loud. They're noted in a book. Once all the votes are read, if there is not a 60% majority, and all of them go into a fire, they're burned with a substance that makes the smoke black. In the event that there was a 60% majority, then they throw in a substance that makes the smoke white, we have a pope. In the event that after four days, now the 16 balance, there is not a pope, they take a day of prayer. And then after the day of prayer, for the next consecutive days, there will be two votes a day at a 50% majority. Mmm... Once the, someone has reached the 50% majority, then ta-da, we have a Pope and there's white smoke. Is there discussion throughout the day when they have yes. those four votes? Okay, so it's not just like, all right, it's 9 a.m., first vote. All yes, right, 11, second vote. Prayer, <laughs> there's time for prayer. It's one in the morning, one in the evening. I meant the, when they the do four, four a day. Yeah. There's, yeah. And there's lunch breaks and whatnot. Yeah. But they're held to absolute secrecy uh, in the conclave. Forever or just during the conclave? That's an interesting point. I think it's just during the conclave, but it could be forever. As to, like, how they voted? Or to how... In in discussions. Anything that happens. So if they had an all-out rave in there, we'd never know. (laughs) Darn. A bunch of old guys doing that is kind of strange. Too soon. (laughs) That's really interesting. Have you been to Rome? Mm Mm-hmm. I went there last um, winter. Did you go to the Vatican? I did. 
What was that like? Of course, I went to the what Vatican. Can you, what, what can How do you, you go to Rome yeah, and not go what can to you, the What can you say about your experience at the Vatican? Because that was just cool. Uh, was the St. Peter's Basilica is an incredible building. Mm-hmm. It took my breath away. I was just awed. I wanted to be in there more and more because I just loved walking through the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fun to go down below to the Tomb of the Popes and see all the popes and the three women that are there. Who are the three women that are there? I can't remember, but they're not notable in my mind. I didn't even know who they were. One's a queen oh. from England, and then two of them are just like... Queen really... from England? Which I know. I was she must have been it. Catholic. Yep. Queen of Scots? Was it, it Mary Queen Mary. of Scots? I'd have to look it up. Mary. I don't know if she's down there. But there were three women, and it surprised me. And I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. She got killed by Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth. Mm. So rude. Yeah. I have no idea where the offices are for the Vatican. Well, there's like an office there? I assume so. Oh, the offices, aren't those in the Center for the Propagation of Faith or whatever? Isn't that where all the offices oh, are? I have no idea. I oh. never found it. You should go. Be like, can I speak to reception, please? Mm. Ask some questions. <laughs> a lot of questions. <laughs> I have an appointment. <laughs> yeah. The Vatican's really small, by the way. It's is a square it? mile. It's a square mile? It's the smallest country in the world. Oh, the Vatican is technically a country. Technically a country. country. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Everything should be in Vatican City, so don't know. Is St. Peter's Basilica, is that the the one that, under the high altar, was that Saint Pope St. Gregory, or was that Albert? Or was that a different basilica? I'm going to go with... The one where you celebrated, you were able to celebrate Mass? Oh, so, yeah, let's clarify a few things. Oh. So in St. Peter's Basilica, under the main altar is St. Peter himself. And the only way to see that is you have to go on a special tour called the Scavi Tour that lets you down underneath the, the St. Peter's Basilica to the ruins of the 12th century the church, the ruins of the 8th century church, the original Roman ruins, and then underneath that is St. Peter's tomb. So I just built it on top, on top, mm-hmm. on top. Yep, that was common that time. So then it, at, only at the end of the Scavi Tour can you actually see the tomb of St. Peter. In St. Peter's Basilica, there's not just one altar, there are many mm-hmm. altars. Mm-hmm. So under many of the altars are other saints, notable saints, and sometimes popes. Mm-hmm. So John Paul II is there, John XXIII, Paul VI is probably now there. I was not there before his canonization. I was there right before his canonization. Um, then Gregory the Great is there, Paul Pius XI, Benedict XV, or Fourteenth. now I can't remember. One of them. But there's lots of them all throughout the basilica oh. that you can go around and you see them. Some of them, their bodies are on display, so you can see their, like, Innocent the third is kind of, he's kind of, they put silver on him, so it's kind of black. But um, ben, um, then Pius XI is, I think he was more or less incorrupt. John yeah, the 23rd is getting kind of corrupted. Um, <laughs> his toes are starting to turn. Isn't that part... Did- is he considered an incorruptible? No. Oh, okay. No. Yeah, my side, he's corrupting too fast. What is what is the corruptible thing? Mm. Just like they never. Good question. So yeah. generally, when someone about? dies, their body decomposes. Yes. Not always the case. Okay. In the case of, I think it's now like five hundred saints, that their bodies didn't decompose, or part of it decomposed it, or it decomposed very slowly. And that is thought to be because of some sort of holy. Their holiness leads them to not decompose? I don't know. It's weird to me, too. Huh. But it happens. It's a thing you can see. Yeah. For instance, St. Bernadette Subaru is one notable example. Um, 
She's the one, the Lord's. Uh, St. John Bosco and St. Um, what's the guy that started the Salvation Army? St. Vincent de Paul. Mm -hmm. St. Vincent de Paul is also incorrupt. I saw it, I was doing a, a column on it for this next bulletin, mm -hmm. and I was looking up all these different saints' pictures, and some of them are incredible. They look like they are sleeping, mm -hmm. and they're three, four hundred years old. That's wild. Yeah. So it's a weird miracle that shows the sanctity of the person through the fact that their body doesn't decompose. Or parts of them don't decompose. Mm -hmm. When I was at Medangel Seminary in Oregon, we they had the relic of St. Ambrose from England, fifth, 15th century saint. What it was was his hand. Just a hand? Just a hand in a jar. And it was an incorrupt hand. Just a you can see all Wait the hands. Wait a minute. But it's in a jar. Is it like a taxidermied jar? Like no. that they ta Okay. Because I was going to say, you see animals in jars all the time that like look like they aren't incorrupt. Hand in a jar. Okay. The skin <laughs> is a little bit discolored, but that's about it. You can see all the hair still on it. You can see all the, the follicles where the hair is. You can see the scars and whatnot. Hand. It's an incorrupt hand. They just cut his hand off? Or so was while, that the only part of him that was incorrupt? That's the only part that's incorrupt. Okay. So during the 15th century, England so, was persecuting all the the Catholics and casting them out. He was too old and feeble to make it across the sea, so he stayed and kept ministering to the people. Mm -hmm. They caught him, condemned him to death, and while he, they were trying to kill him, he was blessing someone. In the act of blessing, his hand was cut off and remaining corrupt. Whoa. Oh. Ambrose is awesome. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah. Huh. Um, I, sometimes only, like, part of them will, like yeah. a finger or a cart. Or, and sometimes they become incorrupt and then later on turn to oil that has healing properties. And sometimes they're incorrupt for 100 years and then all of a sudden corrupt really quickly. Weird stuff. That is weird. Cool. Interesting. A little weird. Um, so this is a completely tangential question. Um, what is, I mean, I understand that the Catholic Church believes in um, exorcisms and all that. What are some of like the things that people don't know about exorcisms because of its prominence in pop culture from like the nineteen sixties <laughs> with the exorcist from then on to now where it's everywhere. So demons do exist. Okay. They do affect people. Mm -hmm. The most common form of demonic possession is temptation. Being tempted towards something. That's the most common form of demonic activity. To like anything or to something that is not <clears throat> something not good. Just not okay. Yeah. Demonic possession, we think of as very rare. Mm -hmm. It is not necessarily the case. I was talking to our exorcist here in the diocese, and he has like three to four cases a month that he personally works on. This is like full-blown, full right of exorcism level. Mm -hmm. I have dealt with five cases since I've been here of people either claiming it or in some level dealing with demonic activity mm -hmm. to one level of full possession. What, what, like, what, is, what is that like? What, what do people say that, that you can say on the record? Like, they just feel weird, they get... So here's they, the weird thing. Okay. So when people are possessed, normally they don't realize it. Mm -hmm. That's the scary part. It kind of comes when we start to either revitalize our life of faith or get back to things that it's like, something's out of sorts. Like, I heard the story of a woman, this is not something I experienced, that she was excited about becoming Catholic again, but every time it come to the Eucharistic prayer, she'd start to vomit. And she gets super, super sick. Well, she'd been involved with witchcraft before and had had residual effects of that demonic level stuff to the point where she couldn't stay in the church. She'd get so violently ill. And she wanted to. She had to figure it out. She couldn't figure out what was going on mm -hmm. until someone 
with more spiritual adept could figure it out. So it's not always the traditional, they totally black out and don't realize, and then like the demon so just takes over. So we got that quite a spectrum of happen. things that can happen. Okay. Anywhere from just delusional ideas to full on, I am like speaking ways I should not. Mm-hmm. Like there's several ways that we determine whether someone is possessed. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, the person needs a psyche evaluation. Okay. We need to make sure there's no psychological issue or we've dealt with all the psychological issues so that there's no probable psychological cause for it. Okay. After we've dealt with that, then we look for spiritual causes. We try, first of all, the sacraments. The sacraments are the best forms of exorcism. Baptism, confession, Eucharist, strong forms, as well as anointing of the sick. These can cast out most simple demons. But the problem is, just as Jesus said, once you cast one out... If you don't make sure everything's right in order, that seven more will come back. Oh. So it's not just, yay, it's out, we can move on with life, but you have to continue to live a good life and live close to God and continue to receive the sacraments, or you could easily be possessed again. So when it gets to the point where it's out of my realm, such as we've gone through Psyche Bell, we've gone through all the sacraments and through all of the time of this time of prayer and it's still not working then I'd refer that, that person to our diocesan exorcist, mm-hmm. who would then do the full rite of exorcism, which takes months, if not years. So it's not just one nope. crazy experience where things are nope. flying around. Okay. But as he was telling me, the person can become violent. The mm-hmm. person can try and kill him. The person can start to get really violently ill. So, excuse me, whenever he does a full rite of exorcism, he will have a medical personnel, a psychological personnel, and a police officer with him in the room during the exorcism. So that if there's need for um, to restrain the person or whatever or not, the police officer can take care of it. If there's medical needs or psychological needs, they have personnel to help with that. It's a, quite an involved process that usually takes several months to several years to really Completely. find the demon, be able to get the demon out, and also protect the person and get them on the right track. So, it's a process. Yeah. Go ahead. Being an exorcist sounds like a pretty tough job. How long are, is that usually like a short-term position? I have not the slightest clue. Okay. It's not like they will rotate out. And I also don't get to know who it is, generally. Right. I found out haphazardly. Interesting. So what are the things to do to avoid being possessed? Well, the best thing is just to take close to the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And say, keep a life of prayer and maintain those things. For the most part, it's not very easy. You have to open yourself up to that. So you have to do things or engage in things that would be demonic or somewhat demonic in origin in such a way where you're assenting to what's going on. So it's, You have to assent. So it's absolutely impossible for a devout person to become possessed. No. No. The, the other way, and this is very, very rare, is that God chooses to possess the person for the sake of their own sanctity. Wait, for God to what? possess them or for God Allow to have them the be possessed by... That's an interesting point that's kind of outside my realm now. Yeah. I don't know how that continue, that how that yeah. works. It's incredibly rare. Interesting. My I'm... sister was talking to a priest when she still lived in Arizona, and he had told her... She was talking about how like she kept having these dreams and like she was describing them or whatever, and she was afraid of something. I can't remember specifically what it was. But he had asked her, it got to the point of, like, I guess, possession or something, and he had asked her why she was afraid of that. And he had said her, to her that Catholics have not been possessed really before. Have. 
Like, never? And I was like, uh, I mean, does he have something to back that up, or is that... I don't know. So they have, okay. Yeah. Or dealt with demonic things, like, um... What's his name? Uh, St. John Vianney used to fight demons in his sleep. What? Right, I remember that Mm -hmm. story. How does that yeah. work? What's the they would come and harass him with temptations and whatnot, and even sometimes be manifest, and he would like have to cast them away. This is not uncommon for some of the higher-end saints. St. Saint Padre Pio, huh. same issue. Um, yeah. Was it St. Teresa of Avila who saw Christ, who Christ oh, yeah. appeared to her, and she said, show me your wounds, and he couldn't because it was... Is a demon? It was a demon. That's <laughs> fairly common. Oh. Or Mary will appear, and the person will think it's Mary, but then when they start praying, realize that she's not praying. And that's the best way. That's the best way to find out if a demon is present. You Mm. ask them to pray with you. And is there is is there truth to like if you know a demon's name that gives you power over them? I would not recommend we go into that topic. Okay. The reason for that is if we start talking about that, people will try to do it. Well, yeah. And then that gives you an avenue to ascend to them. So basically, by saying "I want to know your name," you're saying "I'm letting no. you into my life." Yeah, and that's, that's and that not you what want I'm like a ask. relationship yep. with it. Yeah, and that's, no. yeah. I I was counseled by our exorcist not to deal with demonic stuff, even as a priest who has the faculties and the the spiritual aptitude, I guess, to deal with this. Even though I don't feel that way, mm-hmm. he was said, "Don't deal with it. Just let it come to me." And he said, "The reason for that is you can't. You don't know how to fight with the demons the way I do." Yeah, but particular... counsel the person towards prayer and doing the right thing. And we'll see if that's enough. And in most of the situations I've dealt with, that was enough. Mm-hmm. Just a life of prayer, getting back with the sacraments would take care of it. So where, when you said he told you that you don't have, like, the training that he has, where does one go to get that Exorcist training? Exorcist school. Exorcist school? There's actually, like, um, conferences that are held, and there's a whole training program for being a full-on exorcist. You have to be a priest, though, I would imagine, right? Or it can just be a... Technically, No. no. Priests have a little bit more authority over that because we stand the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. But there are people I know that are religious or even lay people who are exorcists or renowned healers. Huh. Yeah, God does as God wants. Interesting. Um, Okay, so weaning away from exorcisms but still staying in that sort of spiritual realm. Um, Does the Catholic Church believe in ghosts? See, the thing is we have to define what a ghost is. And I don't know an answer to that. Okay. So what would... Go ahead, Bruce. Uh, I wasn't sure if I was allowed to respond. <laughs> no, go ahead. So there... I watched this great Father Mike Schmidt's video oh, on Mike this. Schmitz. It was for, like, Halloween mm-hmm. because he was talking about, like, Ghostbusters and stuff. And he tells... Everyone should just watch the video because it makes more sense. But he tells the story about this convent that was experiencing weird activity like faucets would turn on or lights would turn on so nothing nothing that was um dangerous they were all pretty low-key and friendly type ish um nothing friendly ghosts nothing like spectrally and well and nothing that was like trying to hurt you yeah um and then he said basically um the nuns were going to tear down one of the wings of the convent and build a new one because that one was getting pretty old and unsafe and as soon as they started doing that, the activity, activity increased. And they called the priest, the local priest, 
and he said, well, have you, have you experienced this before? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we, like, for years. And he's like, well, why are you telling me now? Yeah. Like, oh, but it was just like, plus it's turning out, nothing important. And so he sent a priest to go over and say Mass for, I don't know if it was 30 days, um, but every day they were saying Mass, every time they would get to the Our Father, um, the part where you say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, the candles would go out. Like, every, the same moment every time. And he was super freaked out, didn't want to go back. The priest was like, uh-uh, you got to go. <laughs> He's like, nope, get back. Um, and so every day that happened. And then on the last day, at the sign of peace, when the priest says, peace be with you, the candles went out. And so, and then every, it was stopped after that. And so Father Mike Schmitz kind of explains it as, like, those types of experiences that, or those activities that people may experience we would define as ghosts because it's like he made it sound like those in those are the only cases first of all those ghosts are allowed to communicate to us because god's allowing it mm-hmm. and he was saying that they're probably souls in purgatory that are being allowed and asking for like our intercession so like praying for the praying for that soul who's trying to communicate i don't know hmm. so yes and no so lots of things can happen in this realm. It can be souls asking for us to pray for them. It can be people who are at unrest for whatever reason. It can be demonic forces that are causing problems. Any of those are possible. And it's actually fairly easy to figure out what. You pray for them. For those things specifically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you think that there's something messing with your faucet, pray for whatever's messing with your faucet. Huh. If it solves it, then the person just needed prayers and was trying to get your attention. If they start to assault or attack you, it's not someone asking for prayers. Right. Usually things that are more placid, that are trying to get your attention, will stay kind of in the background, will do harmless things. Just annoying things. Like making you turn on faucets, turn off faucets again. Or turn off lights again. If they're starting to harass or attack, that's demonic. Interesting. So the thing is, we define ghosts as like specters or these weird things that happen. But in reality, they're probably just souls of people. Well, yeah, that's what... At least traditionally, I feel like ghosts have been told to be. But I was just curious about more, like, because those are those are kind of the main like spiritual things that the church believes in, or are there more things that? Oh, there's a lot more. Like what? So there's angels. Angels, angels okay. yes. There's also um, miraculous things such as healings. Bleeding statues, crying statues, statues that change, blood that changes from liquid to solid throughout the year. There's Saint um, Januarius. Yep. There's <laughs> weather phenomenon that says John Paul II could command that the rain to stop. Hmm. Um, there's chance occurrences where we encounter something that's for our benefit. The, the spiritual realm is huge. It's God figuring out how to talk with us. Like even if we went to the Bible. We have Balaam in Numbers, the book of Numbers, that has a talking donkey. What? Technically the only situation in the Bible when we have a talking animal. A lot of, yeah. Never mind. You can go ahead and No. No? It, it wasn't, no. It, it was an incorrect fact that I thought was a fact, but it's not a fact. So that's the thing. We kind of try and put everything into a box when it's God's realm. Mm-hmm. God isn't in a box. He is God. Mm-hmm. He does what he wants. Interesting. So does the... This is another broad question that you don't have to answer. Does the Catholic Church believe in extraterrestrials? 
we got to be careful with that statement. Because yeah. what are we asking? Are we saying, yes, we state that there are extraterrestrials out there? Do we leave the option open that there could possibly be? Or do we say, absolutely not, there are no extraterrestrials? So it's one of those? Like yes. The, do you want to try which one? I would say that there is a chance that there is extraterrestrials. Exactly. Life. Yeah. So we don't put, put a lot of attention on it. We're not going to make alien movies that have a Catholic bent to it. We're going to say, <laughs> if there are, we'll encounter them eventually, or we won't. Yeah. It doesn't really matter for the sake of what we're doing until we encounter them. What do you think of the concept, like, uh, are you familiar with Eric Von Donegan? No. He wrote Chariots of the Gods, and he's like the big proponent, or the theory of like ancient aliens and stuff like that. Mm. What do you think about that? Is that just, I mean, I think it's kind I of don't weird. Know. What do you mean by ancient aliens? So there's like... Is that the whole thing going on in like Antarctica? That conspiracy? What's the conspiracy in Antarctica? Like they're finding ancient alien technology that's similar to how people think they built the pyramids? Oh, uh, I mean, kind of, yeah. So they talked about how there's intervention from other planetary things or extraterrestrials helped build the pyramids or when people made these paintings about things in the sky and people assumed they were angels or something else, it was actually aliens. Mm. Um Interesting concept, kind of weird, but I was just wondering what your opinion was on the matter. I don't know. I don't really think a lot about it because it doesn't pertain a lot to what I do. That's fair. If we find more evidence to suggest that might be the case, I'll listen. I'll start to explore it. But just like on in a, it's something that is in my realm, I had a woman come up to me and ask about the three days of darkness. I have no idea what the three days of darkness are. Supposedly, some visionaries have gotten this idea that eventually, in the future, there'll be these three days of darkness where no light source will work. There'll be no sunlight, there'll be no moonlight, there'll be no electrical light. And if anyone looks out their house, there's demons out there that'll kill them immediately. The only thing that works is blessed candles. That sounds... Wait, where does that come from? Yeah, visionaries of some kind. But, like, what kind of, like... Bridget of Sweden visionaries? That's an excellent point. That's the thing that it's not been talked about much because there's not a lot of authentication for it. What are visionaries? People who get revelations of what God wants or what God's doing in special Is that similar to like a mystic? Yeah. Okay. Visionary is a specific type of mystic. Okay. Oh, so mystic is a thing. Yeah, so mystic can be both experience or it can be visions or it can be locutions or it can be... Um, like a dream that becomes yeah. reality. Wouldn't that be a vision? Not necessarily. Oh. I thought a vision had to be like when you're conscious. Not necessarily. No. Do you know the minutia? This is not something I'm very good at. Okay. The mystical realm is very <laughs> okay. confusing to me. But, um... Yeah, so a lot of my questions are in the mystical realm. That sounds realm, so. like the same level of conspiracy theory as the aliens built the pyramids. Yeah, yeah. But, and so I'm not trying to say, like, I'm going to go with one or the other. I let all the things just sit. Mm-hmm. Because they're not critical for now. I don't have to solve them. Yeah. I don't have to get ready for it. And what difference does it make on my life right now? Not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So I don't worry about it. When we get more evidence or I hear more about it, then I can start to work on it and address it. Yeah. But I have enough to worry about, enough to think about. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, the only thing I could think about giving that, the darkness thing, is if, like, the volcano under... Yellowstone blew up, and then, like, we go into an ice age, and it'd be dark, and then we probably wouldn't have power. So. Which they've had seven different theories in the last ten years. About One that's exploding in the next few years. One that it won't explode at all, and it's really actually dormant. Yeah. One that it's not really going to be catastrophic. One that's going to be super catastrophic and change the entirety of the planet. And one that, um, what are the other ones? They keep changing them all the time. One that only part of it will erupt. is like, slowly erupting over time. Like mm-hmm. a geyser. Yeah. Just like a big geyser. I mean, yeah. Yellowstone does have geysers. Mm-hmm. 
and it has guys there. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so... Too bad we don't have a soundboard. Yeah. Add it. Um, okay, so in... This is my penultimate question. Oh, so there's two more. Got yes. it. Um, so, unless we have more, no? Um, or we can go after, who cares? Um, so, the, sh- the name of the show is called Now You Know, Theology in the Modern World. What is maybe one thing that you want people to know that have listened to this series or have just listened to this episode? What's one thing that you want people to say, like, oh, now I know that? That we have reasons for what we believe. And the reasons behind it have levels of theology and deep levels of thought that went into them. It's not just like, oh, we don't want you to do this, or we don't like you for do- we're doing this. But mm-hmm. there's reasons, and there's logic behind it, and there's a whole theology built so that we have reasons for what we say. Okay. All right, and so in conclusion, do you have any parting words of wisdom or whatever to people that have, they're just out there? I've been thinking about this a lot for the last few weeks, how little I quote from sources in a lot of my episodes. Mm-hmm. And part of it was just time. And also, I want to talk more about the logic and the structure and let you think through it yourself, as opposed to saying, here, these old people said these things, which usually you sometimes take out of context or we don't see the full picture or whatnot. Yeah. So that I'm not forcing you to believe or adhere to everything I've said, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping this will be a, a springboard. That gets you off into deeper levels of thinking and also helps you recognize where we're at and to play with it on your own realm. So that as you read, discuss, play with ideas, read articles, talk to people, you're constantly building a repertoire of how to address these questions, how to understand these issues, and then where you need to stand on them. We've made our stance, and we have a lot more behind it that I haven't been able to bring out, but only got 50 minutes. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 